Should we use role-playing games in education? And if we do, what's the proper use of role-playing games in education? What can we bring from our hobby and give to the next generation? If you say My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, Rescuers. Hope this finds you well. Thanks ever so much for tuning in and listening to another episode of Roleplay Rescue. This one's another interview, and I know I've done a few of these in recent weeks, but um, actually this was a fantastic opportunity. I made friends with a guy called Dave Aldridge some months ago now. Um, He has his own podcast called Deeper Centile. But we met at the Albear and Wizards Staff Convention um, around about the tail end of last year. I absolutely forgot when. I think November, maybe? Anyway, Dave and I got chatting um, along with Shandy Andy from Unguarded Treasure. And I kind of got into a number of kind of little philosophical discussions with him. Now, on top of that, Dave has been mentioning over and over in his own podcast the idea that he's really guarded and concerned about the use of... Of role-playing games in education and so I couldn't resist but to invite him to come and have a chat about it. This goes back a few weeks but we basically found some time to edit it and get it out there. Well actually I say we found some time to edit it. What actually happened was that Frank Turfler knowing that I've been really snowed under at work and really struggling to get my podcast done Frank Turfler offered to edit it for me so a massive thank you to the fantastic Frank T and please do check out his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Frank T. He does fantastic artwork, brilliant battle map stuff, and a little bit of that funding goes to charity. So thank you, Frank, for doing the editing. And you, everybody else, please go check out his stuff. Anyway, before we dive into the episode proper, I do have some rather fantastic call-ins. This is Season 5, Episode 15, Talking Games in Education, with Dave Aldridge. Hi, Che. This is Corey calling from Michigan in the United States. In the gaming circles, I go by DM Kojo. I just wanted to call and say how much I'm enjoying your podcast. I just finished Series 1 and really love the tips that you had in terms of getting uh, role-playing into our busy lifestyles. And I thought uh, you had lots of good information there. I love the uh, editing and quality of your podcast. I got uh, made aware of it by your interviews with Gavin Norman. I'm a big fan of Old School Essentials. I also play a lot of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Fantasy Flight Star Wars. And uh, I look forward to hearing what more I can learn by listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Well, hello, Corey. Thanks for calling in. It's great to have a new first-time caller, and I'm glad you're enjoying Season 1. You're doing the thing that, I guess... I wished and hoped more people would do, which is start at the beginning and work through. 
I know that Roy's doing that right now, but you might actually represent a whole new raft of new listeners who kind of tacked on, as you said, by listening to the interview with Gavin Norman. That interview has got to be now probably the second most popular episode I've ever recorded. And I have to say a huge thank you to Gavin for helping to promote the podcast by coming on the show and then pointing his followers at us. It's been fantastic. And I just welcome you all. So, Corey, thanks for calling in. I love that you took the time to do that. I hope you find something useful through season two, three, four, and now five. In the meantime, don't be a stranger, dude. Game on. Hey, Shay, Roy here from Chaos's Limb. I'm up to series two trailers and call-ins. And there you have a call-in from Colin again. Uh, and he uh, brings up a really interesting point that, you know, improvisation, that it's the simplest of things, that it's the games of make-believe that we did as children, but that it's also very difficult. It uh, reminds me of Taoist philosophy, how uh, achieving a childlike mind is the hardest thing. Accomplishing the simplest things are the most difficult things. There's even... uh, I think a proverb in Chinese, Nanda Hudu, it's not easy to become confused. And speaking of Roy, there he is. Thank you, Roy, for calling in again and uh, reminding us of that wonderful calling from Colin, Spike Pit Green of Spike Pit. Roy, of course, from Chaos's Limb podcast, another worthy member of the Anchor community. Yeah, that was kind of deep. I don't quite know how to follow that. I'm just going to kind of let it stand, I think. But I absolutely agree with you that... Um, you know, the more I try to bring simplicity to my own games, the harder it seems. And uh, I sometimes just think the easy thing is going for the complexity I'm so comfortable with. But I'm really pleased that you um, are finding value all the way through Season 1 into Season 2 now, Roy. And I hope that you will continue to listen through and continue to call in. So appreciate your time. Thank you. And now, I have a call in that I was semi-dreading and massively looking forward to nonetheless a reply to my last episode from Andy Goodman. Take it away, Andy. Shay, Andy Goodman here from Grizzly Pigs. Of course, it bloody makes sense. Uh, and I and I bowed down to you because, um, and that is why you are um, Roleplay Rescue, the um, deep-thinking, analytical um, behemoth, and I am Grizzly Pigs, a random collection of stupid thoughts about gaming. <laughs> um, yeah, you've completely nailed it. And I never really even thought about it that way. And it's so true. And and my um, and it really became vivid when you talked about, um, I suppose you could say, interacting with the, the maps. Something as simple as that. Um decisions to go left or right that is a fantastic example so just to clarify for those who who have no idea what i'm talking about it's in response to this um this sort of idea that each game does have its own structure as you and the alexandrian call it and i have read the uh, bits of the alexandra but he's he's too many words (laughs) there's too many words um and i kind of only read about quarter of the articles i wish i had more more patience but anyway um you know i've struggled for a long time with with this thought you know 
why do the rules matter? <laughs> why and how do the rules impart certain qualities and differences in the game? Because in the end, it's just the same people sitting around the table. If you're playing with the same group, you change the rules, it's still the same people. So how does it change? But it does. Of course it changes. And that's the fascinating thing about role-playing games. And I'm sorry to make this another long, rambling, tedious set of messages, but you keep me thinking. That's the problem. And this thing about maps, that really gets to the heart of it. Because when I've been running Call of Cthulhu, um, and, and I'm glad you brought that up as an example, because it does generate a certain style of play not that you can't do a mystery in any game system of course you can nothing's stopping you from doing there's still skill checks to find clues and interrogate people and so on but what it comes down to is when i see look at a map in call of cthulhu like a house or a tomb or whatever i'm suddenly a bit kind of at a loss i don't want to take the players through it or ask them whether they want to go left or right. That doesn't seem to make any sense, really, in Call of Cthulhu. So unlike D&D, where the decisions which direction you go in are so fundamental to how the game plays out at the table, in Call of Cthulhu, you actually want to just skip all over all of that and tell them, okay, there's a couple of bedrooms upstairs and there's the kitchen, the living room, dusty living room with an antique fireplace. You kind of want to give them the entire environment and then they decide what they want to examine in that environment. Making them go through room by room, opening doors and seeing what's inside is just complete, a complete waste of time in Call of Cthulhu because it doesn't matter. Of course, if there's hidden areas, that's another thing, but it's the almost the exact opposite of D&D in that sense. And so in the end, you're right, I'm wrong. <laughs> but I'm glad that you've shown me the error of my ways. Thank you so much, Shay, as usual, for bringing light where there is darkness. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Andy, for that call. Uh, Andy Goodman there from Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks podcast, which you absolutely should be listening to, by the way. He's a great guy. And uh, yeah, I'm glad he kind of meant something and made you understand or helped you understand something that to me, uh, I guess it's been noodling around in my mind for a very long while the way I think and I realized just how invisible really uh, game structure is to a lot of people, you know, and you're absolutely right about Call of Cthulhu versus D&D. I mean, if the goal in your adventure, and it doesn't have to be a fantasy game, by the way, if your goal in your adventure is exploring a location like room by room, then absolutely the dungeon call structure is what you do. But in Call of Cthulhu, you're absolutely right. If you're in a house and you, you just kind of give them the layout, ask them what they want to do, and they will poke around because it's clue hunting. The mystery structure is completely different. And I just think that simple insight makes decisions as a GM at the table a lot simpler. You can basically decide which structure is appropriate to this bit of the game or this game that you're running, drop that into play, and off you go. And of course, the most fundamental structure of all, which is used by almost all role-playing games, yeah, combat. And again, combat's use is in those nitty-gritty moments of high-intensity risk and action and no other time. Anyway, Andy, thank you so much for calling in, and I'm really glad that it hit the spot for you. And uh, yeah, enough about that, I guess. 
and by the way, you made me feel a lot better about utterly stealing the Alexandrian stuff and putting it out on my podcast. Um, <laughs> I always feel bad about it, but you're kind of right. His articles are long and wordy. And uh, yeah, I've got the patience and time to read it, I guess. Anyway, I'm blithering. Let's get on with the episode, shall we? Thanks, Andy. Game on. Dave Aldridge is an indie OSR Anchorite podcaster and the voice behind the Percentile podcast. He describes himself as being a big fan of all things rules light, as well as expressing a general preference for random tables, procedurally generated dungeons, and all things low prep. Dave is a philosopher of education working within a prestigious British university, a noted editor and author in various journals. And he's also a regular contributor on the Purple Worm podcast. Welcome. Thanks for coming back to the show, Dave. Thanks for having me back, Shane. Really pleased to be here. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> and uh, a new year, huh? 2020. Happy New Year to you, yeah. <laughs> Man, by the time this goes out, it'll be about three weeks late, but never mind. True. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about using RPGs in education. Okay. So I thought we might start with asking you for your, I know, one to two minute basic take on it. What do you think? RPGs in education. Well, I, so the way you originally phrased that was using RPGs in education. Yep. And that's where it gets really interesting for me. So I think RPGs, of course, can be educational. They can be educational in all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about this briefly last time we spoke. So an RPG can be educational in that it helps you to understand yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you can make decisions in play um, that teach you something about yourself. So RPGs are really interesting to think about from an educational point of view. They can be educational experiences. Yeah. And that's one thing that is fun to talk about. Then you've got the question of using them in education. I think there's different ways you can understand that. So you, you use RPGs in your educational practice, but they are sort of, you know, they're peripheral. They're part of the co-curriculum. They're part of what you do in your interactions with young people. Maybe if, if you ever do use them in a way that's more central to the curriculum, that'd be interesting to talk about as well. What, what makes me nervous with any sort of games um, is where an educational practitioner says, I'm going to use a game for a particular end. Yeah. Now, I understand games can be used for therapeutic purposes. Um, I don't know much about that, and that's not primarily what I'm thinking of. So I understand, you know, you can use games in therapy, but using games educationally, um, most teachers have got some kind of experience of, of the use of games in educational practice. Um, quite often it means quizzes, you know, <laughs> end of year quizzes, things like that, which have nothing to do with anything that I really recognize as a, as a game. Yeah. Um, but RPGs, the idea of using them educationally makes me nervous. The idea of putting them to use. To me, the value of RPGs is that they are games, is that they are fun, is that they are their own reward. Mm -hmm. um, so instrumentalizing them makes me nervous because I think once you instrumentalize them, they begin to become less like games. Yeah. So that's my two part answer. Sorry, it wasn't one to two minutes. But oh. on the one hand, I really like thinking about RPGs educationally. But on the other hand, I'm nervous about explicitly using them for a particular predetermined educational end. OK, so perhaps it's logical to start with what we are comfortable with. 
Um, I mean, I use them in extracurricular use, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, the way in which I justify my existence as a teacher is, you know, um, with a higher pay band is by doing something extra. And mm -hmm. so I, yeah, I run an RPG club. So you're comfortable with that? Yeah, I'm very comfortable with that. And probably, I mean, I'm, I'm anticipating you can tell me more about this, but probably one of the ways you can justify that to your colleagues is you can point to some kind of extrinsic benefits that the gaming has so and, and, and i know these are trivial maybe you use these maybe you don't but you could say oh you know there's 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 a bit of counting involved there's a bit of addition involved so it's got mathematical benefits you could talk about the value to self-expression and confidence actually th those ones i think have probably got more going for them um, mm. but you could talk about the value for self-expression in terms of the English curriculum or things like that. So you could, you could justify them in terms of their knock-ons. And I understand that one might occasionally need to tactically do that. I justify them, interestingly enough, and I have quite a lot of support from one of the deputy heads about this, mm -hmm. which is what I'm providing is a place where people can come and be safe. And we play games. And what I've got is I've got the what I would describe as the intellectually precocious bunch mm -hmm. who are socially less confident shall we yeah. say you know i've got kids of all sorts of different kind of uh, backgrounds and experience but fundamentally what it is is a little safe space for a few people who don't fit in in a lot of other places you know i think about when i started podcasting I, I joked flippantly about how on sports day they allowed me to do games for the kids who don't like sport and yeah i think that what we've got i've got a place where often i'll get a, a student sort of funneled my way there's no push but there is a kind of suggestion of hey you know if you checked out mr webster's rpg club you might enjoy that if there's someone involved interested in fantasy or anime or um you know perhaps even in sort of computer role-playing games or just generally interested in fantasy and science fiction so yeah that's what gets pointed my way generally yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm entirely comfortable with that. So what you what you might be saying is that through the through the play itself, mm. there are these other benefits to uh, confidence, expression, social skills, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah, fun. yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a it's a, <laughs> but that 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 I think is the thing that sometimes gets forgotten in the educational application of gaming. So they are a it's a worthwhile pastime in itself, and it doesn't mm. require sort of further justification. But it's interesting that the play leads to those knock-ons. The game doesn't need to be designed or set up in such a way no. that, it, that it meets particular objectives. And in fact, no. I think the minute that you did that, the minute that you said, right, in this session, we're going to work on this type of self-expression or we're going to work on this you know, interpersonal skill, I think, mm. you know, the game gets lost mm. and very quickly the players know they're in some kind of other situation. They're in a sort of more explicitly pedagogical situation. Yeah, mm. I think for me, I mean, for me, you know, a big part of what I'm about is allowing a space where the kids can discover games, mm -hmm. you know, and discover a little bit about that, that particular hobby. But also I think that there's a knock-on in that they discover a bit about themselves and about each other. But actually, the other thing is they feel accepted. And I think the minute I try and put some kind of other ulterior motive on top of and layer mm -hmm. that on top of having a good game, you know, they would just smell that out. Yeah. instantly and, and you'd lose i think you would lose their their buy-in really you know and their sense of kind of hey you're not accepting me for who i am suddenly now you're trying yeah. to change me <laughs> yeah you know. yeah uh, does that make sense 
Yes, it does, and that and that's why I think that's why I think I, I constantly come back to that line of yeah, of course, games can be educational, but they're educational through just playing them, mm. <laughs> and I don't want to play educational games and I'm wary of games being incorporated into the curriculum or enlisted into the curriculum and there is a there is a sort of constant danger of that and certainly on the kind of Twitter circles I move in obviously I'm combining edgy Twitter with RPG Twitter a lot of the teachers there that I'm following are already incorporating branching narrative into their secondary you know lower secondary yeah. english curricula yeah mm. so you've got these wonderful things you've got the fight fancy game books i'm really pleased that they're all around schools and it doesn't take very long before they then become enlisted into curriculum english and so you can see this kind of thing happen so now rather than doing a bit of game design for its own sake. You are doing a bit of game design so that you can meet particular year eight English curriculum objectives or whatever it mm. might, might be. Okay, so a couple of strands then I'd like to pick up on. So uh, a friend of mine used to be a primary school teacher, is now an educational consultant. Mm -hmm. He and his team, really, they go into schools, they do English kind of... Um, was it creative writing classes which are based around kind of explicitly fantasy and science fiction themes for example they might do a post that they do do a post-apocalyptic kind of world uh, they introduce the kids to the idea of post-apocalyptic writing and then get them to do some creative writing around that and there are elements they're drawing on their experience from you know live action role-playing role-playing games and reenactment and they're doing that in their english class how do you feel about that oh uh, well it seems harmless seems like good fun Post-apocalyptic is all around youth fiction now, isn't it? It's, it's another one of those genres that has been mined by a particular generation um, who are raised on some kind of landmark post-apocalyptic fiction. And now we've got all of these kinds of young adult fiction that, that, that explores kind of post-apocalyptic ideas. Kids love it. For some reason, they love exploring dystopias, don't they, for some, yeah. for some reason. So I think that that sounds like good fun. Yeah. And, and, and I suppose so. So here's a here's a hard line to skirt. Right. Because on the on the one hand, I think all teachers are pretty creative and can do some fun things if they're connecting with students' interests and interests that they might have. You can usually find something where you can find some common ground. So sometimes I get nervous when you get writers, children's writers going into schools to teach poetry and things like that, because I think, well, that's what English teachers do. English teachers are really good about that, and they love poetry, and they can communicate their love of poetry. You don't have to be a writer to do that. So, mm. so on the one hand, I think it's just another way that all teachers can find some common ground with young people. On the other hand, I think it's great if you want to use educational games or if you want to do gamey-type elements, if you are someone who actually understands what a game is. Mm. Um, I think so many, so many experiences I've had of things that purport to be educational games have been designed by people who clearly stopped playing games very, very young and yeah. <laughs> actually played any <laughs> games. I remember being introduced to a PSHE game. I was trained to use this PSHE game as a teacher. Mm. And in the first round of this game, and it was a unit to be taught over four lessons. And in the first round of this game, we all made decisions. We had our toy money and we made mm. decisions about how we were going to design our lifestyle. And we had to make certain sacrifices around if we wanted to have holidays. There were other things that we couldn't spend our money on. And we did that mm. first phase. And in the second phase, we then all designed our holidays and we all started with the same budget for our holidays and I remember saying I was in the room going look last week we had to make sacrifices and I had to spend money and I deliberately chose 
more money for holidays because that was something I valued. And there are other things. And now we've all started with the same amount of money. I was like, does, does no one around me not, not understand why that's not a game? <laughs> and they were like, yeah. just do whatever, just have fun. I was like, no, that's not, that's not what games are about. <laughs> it's, it's not about just doing whatever, just having fun. It's like, it's gotta, there's got to be some continuity here. There's got to be some rules. It's got to make sense. <laughs> um, and there's loads of other things. Like there's, there's loads and loads of research being done at the moment on educational games by neuroscientists. Yeah. loads of it um and very little of it actually has anything to do with games that i can see yeah. um there's some there's some quite big research that's come out of bristol paul howard jones has been doing it millions and millions because it involves you know brain imaging devices mm. they're expensive machines so it's yeah. highly funded research and it's based on um, tracking brain activity, which is linked to excitement around risk and reward. So basically yeah. what it is, is quizzes. And then when you get your points for getting a question right, you are offered the possibility of gambling. Right. And the gambling is really exciting. But it just seems to me that this has very little to do with anything that I would actually recognize as a game. It's, it's, just, a <laughs> it's just a quiz. Yeah. And, and there are all sorts of possibilities. I mean, part of what might be going on when children are excited might be actually that they're not understanding the nature of the gamble. You know, that actually overall they stand, they stand to kind of break even either way, whether they gamble yeah. or not. You know, so, so actually their, their increased excitement about the opportunity to gamble is actually based on pro probably just a, a mistake in reasoning, mm. <laughs> you know, which, they, which probably we have an educational duty to explain to them. So, so I, I, get, I get nervous when games are incorporated into educational practice for these kinds of reasons. They're, often they are invoked by people who aren't really playing games themselves. Mm. Okay, well, about six years ago, I came across a guy called Pete Figtree, Mm -hmm. um, I downloaded two guides from him, and they're, they're in a folder in my GM folder called Classroom Guides. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember reading these and sort of yeah, not taking them any further. But one's called The Plays the Thing. It's a teacher guide for a game of Shakespearean playwrights and actors. Mm -hmm. And another one is called Stealing Cthulhu, a ruthless teacher guide from Pete Figtree um, on essentially analyzing and creating scary stories using Graham Walmsley's Stealing Cthulhu. Okay. Which is a role-playing game, as I understand mm. it. Now, um, I think it's probably easiest if I just sort of read a teeny bit from the player's guide for the plays the thing, because I think it kind of outlines what he's trying to do. So the guides intend to use alongside the plays the thing a storytelling game from Magpie Games. Any hesitation educator might have about using games in class will find this one encourages deep student engagement in reading and study of Shakespeare's masterpieces. The guide takes the approach that the game will be played at least once as a whole class experience, allowing students to become familiar enough with the rules of the game to eventually play it independently in small groups, and also takes decidedly unhurried approach to a whole class game. Such a measured approach will comfort students in experience this type of game and allow teachers to take full advantage of the many lessons it inspires. And the guide is organized in a chronological order with the rules prescribed for preparing and playing the game. So essentially... What he's doing is you're going to have a teacher who is the playwright, the rules expert and a referee, and the students are grouped. Four groups is considered to be optimal. Each group should play one actor. And then it says nameplates, actors' roles, and any information that needs to be referenced should be visible across the classroom. Posters displaying the actor's role and parts and plots should be available. And then there are invoke and compel and direction details for the actor's part. It's sounding a lot like a kind of storytelling yeah. game experience. Yeah. yeah? And, you know, they're using poker chips to represent story points and all that kind of stuff. Essentially, as far as I can make out, getting the kids to play a role-playing game 
with the explicit thing about studying Shakespearean poetry and plays. So they are going to create an actor, they're going to create characters, they're going to get involved in setting up an act and telling a story. Thoughts? Well, it sounds like good fun. What doesn't come... So I didn't know about that. Mm. I didn't come across that. So I'm excited that it actually invokes someone I know Graham Wormsley's work, so it invokes someone mm-hmm. who knows RPGs and designs RPGs. That's a good sign in itself. I suppose mm. what doesn't come across in what you're reading out is exactly how um, it develops the understanding of the Shakespearean work. I mean, as a yeah. game, as you've described it, I'd have fun playing it. Mm. <laughs> I think children would as well. It's where... You know, it's at what point it is expected to deliver and the ways in which it's expected to deliver where you can end up with tension, tension between it remaining a game and your curriculum aims. Um, But that's something I definitely like to explore and try out to kind Mm. of find find out how that tension operates when you are playing rpgs you can learn all kinds of things along the way can't you and you learn quite happily i mean unless you find a game that is just not to your taste you can't get your Mm. head around the rules or whatever or you really don't like the setting but once you put those things out of the way you can learn quite a lot with limited friction because you're in the game and you want to play the game so you can learn about the setting if it's a historical setting i imagine you could learn all sorts of things about the, the history along the way you learn the rules you might pick up all kinds of other sort of extrinsic skills which are linked to the rules along the way but you're doing all of that because you want to play the game and the game is fun and because there's no Mm. requirement that the game delivers in any of those areas so at no point do you feel pressed to do any of those things they're a sort of fluid part of the experience so i suppose that would be my question about that kind of experience is, is when and how it's expected to deliver I have less concern about that because I work in uh, an education department now. I don't teach anymore, so I can be more and more hippie about the aims of education. So I think (laughs) secondary schooling would be much better if we did away with public examinations and we allowed Mm -hmm. teachers and schools to assess in much the same way that universities did. They could come up with sensible agreements amongst themselves. You know, if if you did away with a lot of that qualification element, if you did, you could just look at that game and you could say this is an intrinsically valuable experience. And Mm. look, we've got kids playing this. They're talking about Shakespeare. The danger comes, I think, when you say, yeah, but (laughs) for the exam, they will need to know these particular things. And this is always the thing that happens with literature, reading literature, teaching literature can be morally edifying. We know that that's one of the values of great literature. But the problem with the character education movement of the moment is that it tries to say, "Okay, so we're going to read this story to develop this virtue. Yeah, <laughs> which then if you're doing that, you're not now doing anything that I recognise to be engaging with literature. Yeah. And I think that's where the tension comes. But that sounds like an interesting one to play and see where it where it bites. Yeah, looking at Pete Figtree's Stealing Cthulhu, it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. He's got, he's encouraging you to get Stealing Cthulhu by Graham Walmsley in the room. But also, here's a list of short stories by H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. And then he's got these little sections here. It's interesting, like, I'm so glad you asked important questions to ask along the way. So example mm-hmm. questions. And kind of what they're doing there is pointing you in bits of the rule book to things you could look at. So for example, what are H.P. Lovecraft's creatures like? And there are some page references if you want to go look them up. Where are they found in the stories? I'm presuming, again, referring back to things like The Whisper in Dark and The Shadow of Rinsmith. And then in terms of overall goals of understanding, it just seems to be that he's pushing for the kind of structure and elements and traits of scary stories and how to compose fiction Mm. inspired by Lovecraft. And there's kind of like 
suggested student tasks to assess along the way, like go and read one of HP Alcast stories and to go and summarize that story and that sort of stuff. Now, to me, I think doing the game in addition to reading the, the literature and exploring the themes of horror and Lovecraft, you know, that, that's probably no harm, right? Right, right, absolutely. And in fact, I think the experience you're describing, I'm, I never was an English teacher, as you know, I was an mm. RE teacher. Like um, but the experience you're describing sounds to me like a nice way of setting out what mm. it is to have a fun and interesting conversation about some shared subject matter. Mm. And in that sense, I think more of education could probably do with being like that you know mm. so so i actually think that's the kind of transfer more of education could learn from yeah. the more sort of laid back way the inexplicit <laughs> way in which we learn through games more yeah. of education could be like that we're having an interesting conversation i'm not going to hit you over the head too hard with the things i wanted you to know mm. but along the way i'm hearing what you're asking i think there are interesting directions we could we could take this, you know. So in that sense, I think educational practice more generally can learn from mm. um, the kind of interaction that goes on in games. You know, there's, mm. a, there's a dialogue happening here. Mm. Again, that kind of approach, which is an approach I sort of more broadly endorse in philosophy of education, comes into tension with that old structure where we used to have to set out our learning objectives at the start and make sure they've been yeah. achieved at the end. Even if we don't follow that structure now, we're still worried about the agreed syllabus or the specification mm. or whatever. And of course, those things will always be there. But what I like about what you described there is there is an inexplicitness about mm. that things are being learned along the way it's not the not the be all and end all if this particular thing comes up mm. in the conversation and i've got a reason why i value lovecraft and why i want you to read lovecraft a bit more and talk to me about it as i'm a teacher i get to make you do that right that's just tough <laughs> luck um but all that being said i'm now going to listen to you i'm going to hear what you're seeing in it and i'm going to i'm going to endeavor for the conversation to follow those interests and every now and again i'll drop something in where i think oh, i could probably turn you around a bit there i could probably probably help you to zoom in on something which you're passing over quite quickly but those kinds of interactions that kind of dialogue which i think we, we actually games masters know how to do mm. yeah we do it inexplicitly we don't say actually there's the trap i want you to look over there i want you to spot this you know we could be dropping clues yeah we so it's yeah it's just a dialogic isn't it uh, you're talking mm. about sort of dialectic learning experience aren't you where yeah. there's a sort of two-way conversation going on between a group of kids and and a teacher who's interested in lovecraft in our case or shakespeare or whatever yeah yeah, and yeah. in the in the one thing I've ever actually published about gaming or in gaming was my chapter yeah. in Dungeons and Dragons and Philosophy. I developed an account of what goes on in an RPG, mm. which mm. is not so different from what my account, which what goes on in learning. They mm. are these moments of emergent shared understanding. In the RPG, it's emergent shared understanding between a player or the players and the yeah. GM. And mm -hmm. in the lesson, it's between the teacher and the student or the teacher and the students. And attention is comes into alignment around yeah. some shared subject matter. The important thing is that may not be the shared subject matter as it was conceived by the teacher in advance. Sure. Yeah? There's the possibility of newness. That's, the, that's why we like those of us who like emergent play. We like that. We like to be surprised. Mm. I think yeah. a teacher who is open to the inevitability of surprise because you don't know your students inside out, you don't barely know them at all, even when you really know them, is more open to their students actually learning.
Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, in my classroom experiences, I run up against the, but it's not in the exam. Personally, I spend an awful lot of time being surprised by my students. And a lot of that is coming from our dialogue. But for me, you know, I might be sharing my passion for a particular aspect of uh, religious faith. I mean, recently, I remember Mm -hmm. talking a lot about the particularly Islamic kind of view on on charity, really. And I'm quite passionate about you know, how Muslims approach charity. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the fact that a smile is considered charitable. I love mm-hmm. the fact, yes, there's zakat 2.5% every year, but there's also like this constant encouragement to do things for others. And it's in that passionate kind of exchange with students, I think, that, that you kind of inspire their imagination, get inspire their questions, and, yeah, their knowledge and their understanding grows, I think. Right, which so, is why, and I know I, I bang on about it, but I bang on about quizzes, but but you but you do find this all over educational practice. Mm. You find games understood as quizzes, and then mm. you find teaching understood as quizzing and learning. I mean, this is, this is, <laughs> this is, this is, this is, this is, that is largely the model that cognitive psychology um in as much as Dan Willingham or others are, are, are propounding it at the moment and is being picked up. It's a model of education as quizzing and learning. And the, and the model you've just, you've just offered, which is of this dialogue in which some kind of understanding can be born, in which something yeah. new can emerge, is not a particularly popular one. And it's not, it's not conducive to publicly standardised examination. Um, <laughs> things we haven't talked about, of course, is the essential pedagogical elements to role-playing rule books and to I play my Christmas board games and to the way that rules are presented in newly designed board games all of those Mm. kind of wonderful things which which mean that good GMs have to be good teachers so there's all Mm. that kind of pedagogy in RPGs but in general I would say if teaching could learn from RPGs that would be the direction of travel rather than and this is going to happen increasingly rather than a teacher picking up fifth ed and thinking this is great I can do something like this in the classroom and then incorporating that experience into that broader kind Mm. of systematic technology of assessment which I just think would be a great shame. What's the philosophical underpinnings of what we're talking about here then? So my philosophical background is largely continental. It's in phenomenology. So a lot of what I've written is philosophical hermeneutics, and I'm trying to give an account of the event of understanding. I'm trying to Mm -hmm. explain what happens when you understand. And I I find it quite natural to think about RPGs in that way as well, because some part of what's going on is that emergent shared understanding. We're in a world together. And what yeah. happens? How is that world that we're in together sort of brought about? So that, yeah, you, that's what I'd say the perspective is. So I'm always interested in when I'm describing a scene within a role-playing game. Say we're describing the dungeon room and I'm describing, mm-hmm. I, I tend to use very few words, try and keep it simple and straightforward. And then what's generated in clearly from how the players react, what's generated in their mind is something that bears some resemblance to what I'm describing, but is obviously unique to that individual. And what I've always been fascinated in is the connection between, say there's four players and a GM, how is it that we understand what's going on and how do we build up the picture of what's going on? Is that kind of the sort of phenomenon you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's fun because one of the ways that we can be surprised by what our players come up with is that we understand differently. This yeah. is the phenomenon that Gadamer calls the fusion of horizons that, uh-huh. you know, I, you're right. You use few words. Increasingly now I'm being really, really lazy. And instead of room descriptions, I just bung tags in. So yeah. I just have three or four tags for the room. There they are or some dressing. But I've got a whole background of understanding 
against which those tags stand out and with which those mm. tags have various associations. And then my players have got, there's plenty of overlap, but they've inevitably got different backgrounds of understanding. So even in that very tiny condensed description, they're making all kinds of some related associations, but lots of different associations. And this is why sometimes they'll say, oh, I want to interact with the room in this way. And you think, oh, I totally didn't foresee that. That had no part. You know, so sometimes they'll, they'll create things that weren't there in your description, but seem entirely mm. appropriate now that they've said them, that they would be there doesn't always happen that way sometimes we talk at cross purposes we misdescribe we misunderstand mm. that does happen um, but mostly what's going on is that we're understanding differently and that's why mm. there is always that newness that's why the players aren't just moving through a story that we've pre predetermined mm. and that's in even the most railroady non-narrative game <laughs> you know even, <laughs> even if you're just reading the descriptive text out of a mm. pre-written module that emergent property is still there that newness is still there so that's, that's why i don't often go a bundle on those kinds of distinctions between narrative games or very, very, even very very prescriptive or railroady games yeah. but i do quite often say look you're not telling a story because <laughs> yeah. because as much as you like to be it's going to be taken out of your hands it's going to be taken out of your control by the players mm -hmm. and that's what you want the players to do yeah, I, f I find it fascinating, you know, again, coming back to school, but working with those sort of, I don't know, 11 to 14 is probably mm. the biggest group of kids I've got coming to club. Um, when we were playing the Existentials and we and we went into the caverns of Thracia last year, actually the year before last, goodness me. Um, <laughs> but when we went there, you know, I had 12 players around the table. As I was describing like the first kind of couple of chambers in the in the caverns, and I remember this being this big vaulted chamber with huge kind of pillars and all of that stuff. Mm. What was fascinating is watching and then listening to what the kids asked about it and what they described themselves about it and mm. the things that they said they were going to do in that situation. They became, for example, completely fascinated with a cr sort of crevasse, like, I know, hole in the floor, you know, kind of like a crease in the floor, which in the dungeon actually goes down quite a long way. And they were like, what's down there? You know, and <laughs> yeah. what's going on about that? You know? mm. And for me, it's just like a throwaway kind of little bit of, of right. dungeon dressing, you know, but for them, it was about 20 minutes of what's down there. Can we get a rope down there? Can someone go yeah. down there? And all of that. And that's what we're talking about, isn't it? There's a real value. And especially, I think, for younger people to kind of... Uh, enter different tropes and enter different kinds of ways of expression mm -hmm. you know i spend a lot of time with them helping them to understand the the tropes that come with dungeons and dragons for example you know that the idea of um i mean the very idea of a 10-foot pole was totally alien to, right so you average 11 year old you know for starters why would i want a pole and then secondly 10 feet you know, how yeah. long is that, sir? Yeah. And we're talking, you know, what are we talking here? We're talking about a meter and a bit or something pole, you know, and they're like, what? Um, yeah, these things that you and I probably take for granted, for them were entirely new experience. Right. Yeah. So there's two things I want to pick up. The later stuff first. So that is fun. There is yeah. a genre here. There is something for you to learn. There's a language game, if you like, for you to be inducted into mm. here. But on the other hand, this whole thing is possible in a way that it wasn't so possible even 10 years ago, you know, a bit more than 10 years ago, you know, various things have happened in the popular imagination <laughs> that make that make this a much more viable conversation. You know, the Lord yeah. of the Rings films, Harry Potter, a couple of other things, mm. maybe Marvel superheroes have made mm. that dialogue further underway than it would have yeah. been if you tried to do this 15 years ago, say. So that's kind of fun. But once it's underway, you can then say, oh, yeah, but there are 
you know, there is a genre to this. There are re- there are reasons why some of these commonplaces emerge. You know, there's and there, and there's different threads we can pull. You know, we can go yeah. back and read source literature now, and that will help yeah. you understand this language. Yeah. Or we can, you know, we can actually do the activities, and we can we can understand why a ten foot pole would be so valuable. <laughs> so there's there's that kind of stuff about around learning the genre. Now, actually, that more directly, that genre has got no kind of value beyond itself, and that doesn't sure. really matter. But indirectly, it has all those kinds of knock-ons. You know, what I mean, you mm. you understand all of this, all of this stuff. There's a possibility of a richer, more educational understanding, even of watching The Hobbit, than you, yeah. than you would otherwise have through doing this kind of stuff. So that's good. But the other thing, going back further, when you talked about that crevasse, yeah, one of the things that's fun here is that that image actually gives a sense of what's going on in dialogue more generally. You know, in dialogue, we might think we understand each other. We might think we're in agreement. But actually, somebody else has noticed that crevasse that we, you know, that we alluded to very briefly. You know, that's why I like engaging with in dialogue with people that I disagree with, because they'll take you, they'll take you down one of these digressions Mm. that you passed over and they can see much more easily. But but again, that's why I think philosophers can learn a great deal from that game experience so these are the senses in which i think Mm. gaming can really be educational i'm wondering you know whether we should engage the teachers themselves in role-playing would it help their dialogic abilities maybe maybe (laughs) i I suppose i've more commonly tended to say and and maybe my players will all jump up and disagree with me here but i've more commonly tended to say that i that i've got certain good qualities as a gm because i've Mm. been a teacher Actually, there's certain <laughs> elements of sort of less direct classroom management and things like yeah. that that are quite that are quite useful and and just certain kind of basic changing tack communicatively mm-hmm. things like that that you learn in teaching. But I think it must be a two way transfer. I think there must be things that I I maybe never thought about that so explicitly that I do more naturally as a teacher because of this because of this pastime that I spend so much time doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly if teachers are going to use games they should play some i do think people forget why they i mean board games are having analog gaming is having its resurgence it's great that lots of people are liking going to board game cafes and nerding out with board games and things like that but i do think people forget what it was they enjoyed about games and they should probably play a few games before they bring a game into the classroom (laughs) they should actually just say you know what why am i thinking that this will be fun for the students is it important that it's fun for the students, I mean, what you do, what you were describing with that warmly influenced activity, to me is just it's it's fun, but it's fun because it's not so far from what the dialogue of learning could be anyway. Mm. You know, it's fun because you've got a bunch of people in a room exploring something. You're making an effort to sort of hook them into it. Yeah. So that, that's the sense in which learning could be fun. Chucking a quiz <laughs> into a learning... I'm, I'm going to stop banging on about quizzes. But, but, but it's amazing how widespread it is. But chucking a quiz into a learning situation doesn't make it any more fun for anybody, I don't think. I'm not going to say anything else about quizzes now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I might be able to provoke a bit more. So, okay, so the, de- the gamification of, um, of lessons then, you know, something I've been reading a little bit about over the last couple of years, trying to gamify. And a lot of this influence actually comes from the computer games industry, as I understand it. He's starting to now talk about um, it's not just about kind of quizzes and it's not just about mm. like, giving them tokens and rewards and mm. extrinsic things. But I'm never entirely sure beyond that what it was about. I mean, what do you think? Gamifying lessons? Yeah, so I, I actually think that 
the gamification literature is not particularly sophisticated. And although people say it's not just about this, mm. um, it quite often is. I mean, what gamification is what is about wanting, you know, that, that incredible satisfaction that you have from the ding experience, you know, ding, yeah. ding, I've leveled up, I've got a badge. And, you know, you, you can see people saying, if we could just bottle up even a tiny piece of that addictiveness of the ding experience and move that into learning, we'd be onto a winner. Or so, or so people, or so people say. And I, I think it's not much more ex- sophisticated than that. There, it, it's good when people recognise that there are games and games. And I often have master students who want to write about gaming, and they're mad about gaming, so they go and read the gaming literature, and then they start writing about Minecraft and Candy Crush and Assassin's Creed as yeah. if they're the same thing. And Minecraft, <laughs> Minecraft and Candy Crush and Assassin's Creed aren't really, maybe Assassin's Creed and Minecraft, but they're not, you know, Candy Crush is not importantly similar to Assassin's Creed. You know, mm. Maybe there are some ding experiences you get in Assassin's Creed, but Assassin's Creed is a kind of immersive world. Candy Crush is some whole other kind of crap and they're not the, <laughs> they're not the same. So, so if you want to, if you want to bottle it up, you should be clear about what kind of experience you're trying to, you're trying to emulate. I know there are, there are crossovers. You have the things. And I kind of think, Bottling up the Assassin's Creed type thing is going to be richer and more valuable long term than bottling mm. up the Candy Crush type thing. You know, the, the yeah. Candy Crush type thing, really, you're saying instrumentally, how can we use some of this kind of whatever it is that inspires motivation? How can we use this to encourage students to do the kind of factual recalls that we want them to to do for the yeah. exams. Whereas with Assassin's Creed, you're saying, you know, what is so great about the experience? Well, it's it's freedom. It's mm. that feeling that I could do anything. It's the freedom yeah. that I can go anywhere. It's the freedom. And of course, once you play that out, you realize you shouldn't be playing Assassin's Creed. You should be playing a tabletop RPG because that's where you get the real freedom. <laughs> we know about that stuff. But even so, but I, th- but I think that's what appeals in a game like this or something really massive like Skyrim. What, what you're enjoying there is that you can make the game your your own that it's an individual experience mm. that you have this seemingly endless freedom and, and i think the more of that you could capture in education the better you know there's a sense that a student has that this is my learning i'm in control of this i'm following the threads that i've chosen to follow i don't think you're going to get very far i mean th- this is what the howard jones stuff is trying to do this is what a lot of the neuroscientific research around gaming is trying to do is trying to find out what are the how is a ding moment motivational and can we reproduce that in education but you know the ding moment keeps you coming back keeps you pressing the buttons i don't know what kind of thing it is that you want students to be coming back to in education but you do find this one of the reasons why this idea is so prevalent is because a lot of your cognitive psychology work as you know is done in higher education because it's edu- it's university researchers they enlist their students you know they put the email call around across the university so they get a whole bunch of students and then they do an intervention and they've got to measure the results of the intervention it's a short time scale so how do you measure the results of the intervention you make your intervention be about a list of relatively bounded propositions it's a knowledge organizer it's just a bunch of (laughs) atomistically defined facts and then you test the success of the intervention by how much of the knowledge is retained. So because that is such a convenient way to do research in cognitive psychology, if you said to the cognitive psychologist, well, isn't education more than that? They go, well, maybe, but I can't measure it. <laughs> it's time to, you know, and, that, and that's fine. That's fine for cognitive psychologists. That's what they, But the, the danger then is you transfer that into education um, because that's the way the research has to be done. You then start using relatively bounded factual recall as a proxy for learning that is much more easy to do because at the end of the day kids have got six exams anyway you know and so you get this wonderful convergence of 
technology into which it would be really appealing if you could just bottle up some of that kind of ding motivator so that you condition children to take pleasure in what you want them to learn. But I think you have to kind of move away from that. What threatens to be a perfect technological system? And it will be terrible when it is perfected. It scares me. (laughs) Yeah. And gaming reminds us that the dialogue itself is intrinsically valuable. Mm. The dialogue is the thing. The dialogue is the learning. It's not it's not the qualification. It's not the form of measurement. Mm. What about parents then? How do you think they might harness, you know, the gaming experience they're having to just engage their kids, I guess, in the learning? They should just play with their kids. Mm-hmm. They should just play with their kids and they should learn the hard lesson, which I'm learning, which is if their kids don't want to play their games, they have to deal with that and <laughs> play whatever their kids do want to play. <laughs> ah. I look around at other gamer parents and they post pictures on the internet of their kids holding their fifth edition players guide yeah. and they're really excited. They're going to run their own game. And I, you know, the, the, you know, I've got three amazing, wonderful kids with really rich inner lives. They're really creative. They just don't like D&D very much. And what's educational valuable is just spend time. Just spend yeah. time taking an interest in what they're playing. I have to grit my teeth and talk about Fortnite. I don't really want to. But, but, if, <laughs> um, but if, if I can get it to anything around the table. Yeah rather than Fortnite, say, you know, so if we're playing anything around the table or we're sitting around the table having a chat about something they're interested in, that's, even if I was going to invoke neuroscience, all of your neuroscience, all of your attachment theory, that's what you should be doing. You should be talking to them, taking interest, reading with them. Yeah. You know that, yeah, all those things. Yeah, I think, the thing that gets me is that um, I think we've got, okay, so I'm in a kind of fairly affluent of, I don't know, to be honest, the school I'm in is in a very affluent area with, I think sometimes parents who are a little bit absent, yeah? Um, and what's interesting is watching those kids who come to club and game, really developing a rich relationship, you know, with me as an adult yeah. and with each other as kind of you know, like peers around, you know, what is an argument about whether we should tap that with a 10-foot pole or, you yeah. know, whether we should, whether should we loot that body or what, or should we leg it? I don't know. I, I feel like there are parents missing out on something. If they've got kids who are in any way interested in this stuff, then they're kind of missing out. But in a way, then there's another part of me that thinks, yeah, but I don't want their parents interfering with that, actually, because <laughs> I've got this really rich little club going. Yeah. I don't know. And if you find yourself going into Blackwell's art shop and picking up the fifth edition starter set and not knowing whether it's a board game, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, then, then you probably shouldn't <laughs> rush into GMing for your kids. You should probably just buy them the starter set and let them work it out for themselves. <laughs> I don't know. Is this what's behind your desire to like get that introductory game back? Because you've talked an awful lot about experience with Final Fantasy, um, RPG, and I've spoken a lot in my time about my experience with the Red Box D&D, with the starter of solo adventure and then kind of teaching you how to GM and all that kind of stuff, which I passionately feel is missing from our hobby right now. You know, I just think there are so few ways in which a young kid, you know, when I was 11, 12, when I was learning to play, can pick that up and run with it. Uh, is that what's kind of underpinning your desire to see something made in that? Or return? Yes, I'm, so I'm glad you... I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. We signposted this, didn't we, earlier? And this is something mm. we should come back to. Yeah, so this this is something I've only started thinking more about recently, that there is a pedagogy. You know, there, there's a whole... I, I should be thinking more about this because yeah. you know, teaching the game is 
interesting in and of itself it's a pedagogical mm. event and we think in really sophisticated ways about pedagogy yeah. when we're teaching the game to new people and then you've got how the game is presented in the book and i'm not sure how successfully that gets done so one i rave about is the way that dungeoneer did mm. it by just using that conceit of directing your friends in fan fantasy films mm -hmm. steve jackson before that with fighting fantasy did it by saying the gm is god that was probably not very sensible at the time around satanic panic <laughs> and things like that. But um, but I can see why he why he did that. But that exercise, this is a book, it contains the rules, but this is a book which is also teaching you the game, I think is mm. really interesting. I've started thinking more about it as I've I've never been a big board gamer, but I'm increasingly getting into board games. And mm. I am really impressed by how newer board games teach the games. I don't think Space Alert is particularly new, but it's a Vlada Shvatov yeah. game. And the the introductory book is bigger than the rules. You know, the introductory yeah. book is pages and pages and pages of staggered missions yeah. that you go through, which gradually yeah. introduce the game. And I'm thinking, yeah, do we, do we ever really do that successfully? My experience, I've gone on about it before, was picking up the Riddling Reaver, not knowing what I was holding, yeah. and being completely confused for a while until it clicked what mm. kind of experience this is. And once it clicked, I couldn't get enough of it and I was all yeah. over it. But it didn't tell me. In fact, Riddling Reaver just refers back to another book, which I couldn't yeah. even get hold of. So it was a total <laughs> mystery. But I don't know what you think, whether there are games that have done it well. GURPS, I know you're into GURPS at the moment. I was looking back at GURPS third edition, which yeah. does it with a choose-your-own-adventure type story. Yeah. I think the Mensa had a choose-your-own-adventure yeah. type story in it. That's one way mm -hmm. that people have tried to teach the game. But That's I'm certainly also, interested in that. That's how Tunnels and Trolls did it as well, right. I think. Well, no, Tunnels and Trolls originally kind of, you know, was just a role-playing game, but mm -hmm. they very quickly did the solo thing. And then yeah. I think it was easy for you. I think, yeah, that solo choose-your-own-way you know, is, is a nice way in. I, mean, I spoke about this recently um, in a previous episode as well with the fine fantasy thing. I think it's a nice way into like the bounded experience. And I think Ray Otis put it quite well when he suggested that actually you kind of want to run up against the edges of that. When you yeah. run up against the edges, well, why can't I do this? And that's actually the point at which I think when a role-playing game is true freedom, kind of when it hits you, what you can mm. do, you know, well, hang on, mm. I could do anything. I was interested in, uh, I think the angry GM, you know, love him or hate him, and I tend to love him. He uh, he writes a lot about how board games specifically are very, very good at delivering that how-to experience. Yeah. Yeah. And his frustration and the reason he wrote his game Angry Book, which, you know, the first part of that, again, is trying to introduce role-playing. I'm not sure it's that successful, actually. It's, it's one of the better ones. Right. You know, because, right. but I think maybe because there's so few good attempts at it, you know. Um, but what he's saying is actually a lot of time you read a rule book, you know, there's a massive assumption that you know how to play this thing. There's always that obligatory what are role-playing games thing. There's often a bit of a example of play, a dialogue. Yeah. But actually very rarely is there a, now how do you do that? I was talking to Gavin Norman actually about uh, OSE and one of the things I like about the old school Essentials set is that it contains the things that came from BX and from Beckme about how to create a dungeon, how to set up a hometown, how to do a hex you know, map, you know, build a wilderness adventure, that kind of thing. And whilst they're very brief and they're only like lightly touched and lightly sketched, 
I still think they're more useful than things that are in fifth edition. It's really funny. Yeah, when I saw that, even after Gavin set me straight on it, I still swore blind that um, <laughs> that those couple of pages he had on wilderness sequencing and yeah. dungeon sequencing, that they were modern innovations. He's like, no, and having gone back, gone back yeah. to the books, they are exactly what was in the books. Just even that yeah. thing that says, here are the eight steps mm-hmm. that you go through in a turn. Actually, I think it's hard to improve on that. Yeah. The introductory thing has become a bit of a genre. Do you know what I mean? You yeah. get the example of play, which is sort of semi-comical and in a particular yeah. voice, and then you get the what is an RPG. You know, you recognize the familiar steps, and I think mm. it's hard to think around that and to think yeah. of what, what else you should do. I definitely think we could be trying something else, but it's hard to think of what it is because I think there is a there is an event waiting to happen. I've talked about this on my podcast but there definitely is i mean those those fighting fancy books i talked to ian livingston about this at dragon Mm. meat he says there's no interest in doing an introductory book by scholastic because they just don't care right they've still got a back catalog and they are repackaging them for eight to ten year olds that's that's why you've got the new art that's what they're doing i just think great but i was eight when i started role playing and i did it through Mm -hmm. the riddling reaver there's a missing book because fifth edition player's guide it's no worse as an introductory, you know, the introductory bits are no worse than mm. you find anywhere else, but it's not for eight to 10 year olds. Yeah. You just think you've got all of that market for the fighting fancy mm. books. If you just did that introductory book, and I'm increasingly yeah. thinking, right, if Ian Livingston isn't interested in doing it, then <laughs> I, you know, I might see if somebody else wants it, see if Osprey wants it or someone like that, right. you know, just a, you know, one that's going, yes, we know they're packaging it up for it. People have tried the eight to 10 year old sort of RPG game. There's a few out there, but they're not, desperately innovative some of the ones that i've seen you know there's one i can't remember the name of it but it's packaged up very much a very short game it's packaged up for parents to play with their children but it's got a few weaknesses so one is it's one of those systems where i think your character has got four or five abilities and they've got different sized dice to link to all their abilities so automatically every problem that a child encounters they will want to make a problem that links to their d12 ability rather than their d6 ability you know that stuff (laughs) whereas something like actually something like fate accelerated the rules are so sparsely presented that i defy most people who aren't really experienced gamers to understand what they're supposed to be doing but actually (laughs) that's a great game to play with young people because actually the the rules are all about the game becomes all about the tags it's mm. the tags you've put there. It's the genre tags. It's your aspects, which mm. can be positive or negative, that everything becomes about, rather than about funneling things towards your D12 ability rather than mm. your D8 ability. But I definitely think, yeah, there is an event waiting to happen where all of those eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old readers, you know, even if just a small number of them saw mm. something like the Riddling Reaver, wow, we could do this. Obviously, mm. this is where I want to go. Steve Jackson in the opening paragraphs of fight fancy the introductory role-playing game says yeah the books are great but the problem is you then get a choice you get two or three options but imagine if the only limit was your imagination and you know Mm. you read that and you go yes of course that was this is what i've been looking for this whole time you transcend the book. I, th- I think at that point you leave the books behind. I mean, we're raving yeah. about the fight fancy game books. I love for nostalgia value flicking mm. through them. But I think once you discover that, you do. You kind of you, you move yeah. through them into something else. But yeah, I'd love to. Well, you get, yeah, if people called in to Roleplay Rescue with good examples of ways that games have done that pedagogical thing or suggestions for how we break out of that mm. genre. Um, because mm. you do, you see all the commonplaces, very familiar things, and I'm not sure if they work. And it's hard to get into the mind of someone who doesn't already know what all of this stuff is. Mm. Wow. We ought to write it. I really do think there that. You well, there you go. There you go. We should pitch it to Osprey right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, let's try and pull this together and wrap it up. I'm, I'm sort of, uh, you know, what are we saying? What are we saying? We're saying that, okay, so first of all, we have no problem with playing role-playing games in schools. That's a great thing in and of itself. Mm. Um, we get tweaky about where when it enters the classroom. And it seems that what you want to suggest is if you're having um, playing the game for the game's sake in the classroom, and that's a healthy thing. So that's actually really good. And one of the things that we seem to have discussed at length here is how the dialogue that a GM has with players and that players have with each other, that is a really good model for education. Yeah, um, I think so. The fun thing with hermeneutics is you always lose sight of what's the model for what, what's coming first. <laughs> that's the thing with Gadamo. You know, is he talking about text? Is he talking about dialogue? Is he talking about reading? And, and actually, it all gets a bit messy. There's a circularity. So I don't know what the more basic level of the model is, but certainly there's an interaction between all of those yeah. activities. And I think they can all learn from each other. Yeah, I'm wondering about the engagement. And I'm coming back to that stuff mentioning Walmsley, you know, and Pete Figtree's stuff um, from a few years ago. And he seems to have vanished. I think what he was trying to do was engage interest and motivation through we have this kind of fun game experience and now we're getting interested in reading Cthulhu or something or you know Shakespeare and hopefully that's going to sort of breed an enthusiasm mm. uh, I think it would probably rely heavily on him as the practitioner in the room bringing that energy and that excitement into the experience um, that's what I suspect you know, from my own experience I think right. you yeah. come in with energy you can engage kids probably on almost anything um, mm. uh, and it kind of like has legs you know because of that the game is another excuse to have yeah. a conversation i guess that's what we're saying yeah that is just a truth about education and certainly there was a movement a few years ago gove gove went on record about this <laughs> saying that education can't be all about the charismatic teacher you know we've got to find the right ways of doing things it can't be magically charismatic so we've got to find the right ways of doing things this moved into even people spending money trying to find the right scripted lessons find the right textbook find the right lesson script and then it doesn't matter who you are you can just deliver the lesson script. So there was that rejection of the idea of the super charismatic teacher. Yeah. And I certainly don't think teachers need to be always on and need to have all these wonderful personal skills. But you're absolutely right. There is an inevitability that what you're trying to do is you're trying to convey something of why this subject matter is valuable. Yeah. And you do that by actually thinking it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then by using whatever kinds of enticements you can. I mean, one of the things I've written about is I've said we should talk about love. We should talk about love for subject matter. And we should also, although it makes you awkward, you should talk about love for the students. There is a twofold thing there. You, you think something is valuable and you think they're valuable enough that you want to hand it on. You want them to, to pick it up. Um, courtship is something that I've talked about. So there's a philosopher of education, Porrick Hogan, that talks about education as courtship, that there's something about the way courtship works that translates into education. So for example, you can't, we know from literature that nobody ever won the object of their courtship by pretending yeah. to be someone else, right? That always goes wrong. So you can't pretend to have passions that you don't have. You know, and we've seen that the ghost teacher who comes in, puts a cap on, hey kids, <laughs> today tries to talk a bit street or whatever, you know, that, that, that doesn't work. You have to engage them with what you've actually, with mm. what you've actually got. And also, there's some things you just can't make kids fall in love with. And that's okay. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's okay. And, and I think it's also okay that, you know, there are some kids that you will find in a connection with, if you like, in what you're doing. And there are some that you just won't. There are you some know? that you will just wind up. And that's, yeah. yeah. 
and yes. it, and I guess that's okay because that's how it is with human interaction generally, right? Yeah. But, you know, uh, there are some people that just drive you nuts. So yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want to spend any more time with them. Yeah. Um, and and then there are you know and then there are I guess what you're hoping is you kind of get majority I suppose in the room at least mm. vaguely engaged. As a teacher, you know we're massively under pressure to to engage everybody all the time, which I just think is an impossibility, right? But it's probably made more possible by bringing genuine passion to the room. Yeah. And language. Has another thing it's worth just talking about, actually, is the use of language. It's been a kind of an encouragement, or actually, no, a kind of, a strong encouragement recently to use our full vocabulary, mm. you know, in the classroom. And to, you know, the idea, I think, being that the more word-rich, I think that's the phrase people like to use these days, yeah. the more word-rich kids are, the better they tend to do, you know, some pretty reasonable stuff behind that, I understand. So, yeah, as a practitioner, come into the room, use your full lexicon, bring your vocab, and explain it as you go. That's you know. it. You use a word and then explain what what yeah. you meant by it. And I suppose that's there's a whole other topic. I alluded to it, but there's a whole other thing we could talk about, which is this, this whole burgeoning genre of young adult fiction. Mm. There's always mm. been stories, books <laughs> that have been written with pedagogical intent and with a particular kind of hermeneutical goal yeah. in mind. But definitely the explosion of the genre has happened in the last 15 years. And there are things about mm. that that I'm kind of nervous about, you know, that they are some there's some kind of alternative fantasy and science fiction used to require something of a reader. They mm. used to be a way, you know, you, you would have the precocious reader of science fiction who would always have a science fiction novel in their pocket. And mm. they were, if they wanted their science fiction, they had to be drawn out of their immediate range. Mm. They had to improve their vocabulary. Whereas now what we've done is we've taken all of the classics. We've, we've even taken all of the nastiest horror films that we can find and then repackaged them in an acceptable <laughs> vocabulary appropriate way for 14 year olds or 12 year olds or eight year olds. And I, I find myself a little bit depressed by that. Yeah. I mean, bringing it back to games, um, I feel like, you know, when I went and set up the club the first time and it was a different school, I was very conscious of wanting to give them the experience, the full adult experience, I guess, is the way mm. I'd explain it. The experience that I'd had um, wasn't being like treated as a kid. Mm. No, thank you, evil for me. Um, whilst a very fine product, I have no doubt, you know, to me is a weird thing because I got Dungeons and Dragons Mensa and mm. I got RuneQuest and I got like eventually Palladium and for goodness sake, that's pretty adult, adult themes. Um, and, and I didn't, I didn't feel like there was anything wrong with that particularly. There are a couple of areas in which I would not go anywhere near in terms of content, you know, obviously full on adult content, yeah. but, yeah. but actually the tropes of science fiction and fantasy and even of a lot of horror um, are reasonable. They're enticing to kids, I think, simply because they are adult, they're grown up, they're yeah. interesting. Yeah, and this takes us full circle. And sometimes they're a little bit illicit, and that's quite cool. I mean, I've mentioned on my podcast, fighting fantasy books when I was really, really young weren't yeah. allowed. You yeah. couldn't read them in reading time. Those aren't books, mm -hmm. and that was that yeah. was really cool. Yeah, so I think No Thank You Evil is a good example of how you know it's well-meaning, it's incredibly well-intentioned. You know, we want we want good gender models. You can see all the gender models there. There's the girl yeah. in STEM. There's the techie girl. It's all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but but I you know again, kids know kids know when they're being educated. Yeah, and sometimes mm. they just want to play. I mean, a good example of that is uh, oh, you'll you maybe get loads of call-ins about this. But the last season series of Doctor Who, I'm going to go out and say it was so explicitly pedagogical. Mm. 
as to be not entertainment. You know, I, mm. I felt, and I know if you go back to the origins of Doctor Who and the BBC aimed, but it was so explicitly, I thought, you know, I'm getting a history lesson. I'm getting, I want to watch Doctor Who and I'm getting yeah. a history lesson. And kids are going to feel that. And I worry that No Thank You Evil's got a little bit. And also kids know what kids are, right? Yeah. So taking your idea of a child and packaging it back for kids, kids like zowie stuff <laughs> and they like, <laughs> they like dragons on scooters. I just kind of think, no, it's not going to work. It won't work with my kids. You know, they know, they know when things are being packaged. The other problem with No Thank You Evil is that, of course, it's tied to the cipher system. I love the adjective noun who verbs thing. Yeah. That's great. But also keeps the action point economy thing. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the hardest thing for children to understand. It's a weird thing. It's not representative of other games. So it's a problem with... I couldn't play Numenera with my kids because they just couldn't get their heads around that okay so i'm spending out of one attribute to avoid damage in another attribute mm. but actually what i'm i'm spending and that's the same as damage you know numenera yeah. is pretty weird anyway i've had my my adult players have said hold on i think there's a swizz here i'm just spending <laughs> out of speed to avoid loss of might what's going on um you know so to have the game sort of built around that as a core that's a weird mechanic I'm very happy yeah. to say mechanic that's a weird mechanic to have at the center of that experience it just doesn't seem to me to be an important part of gaming it's, it's there because that's part of the monty cook cipher system thing mm. i i would use if i was going to use a game something that's already there scarlet reviewed it on my show i'd use the my little pony game which is a wonderfully uh-huh. designed little game unusual for an intellectual property yeah. like that to be so well designed but mm. highly recommended great stuff as a part of me now, as an educator, I'm sitting here wondering whether we have used vocabulary that others may not entirely have followed. But, hey, that's their problem, right? Well, I'll do what I did before. When I realise I explained a loads of rules wrong or linked them to different systems, I'll give you a bunch of call-ins with corrections and you can stick them on the end. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, people can always call in, can't they, if they want to no, discuss Gadamer a bit more. <laughs> well, I'm really grateful for doing this. I think that... Um, I wanted, I just wanted to put out there, you know, this, this conversation really. And I think begin something that's a little bit, I don't know, just a little bit to the side of the mainstream mm-hmm. of what we tend to do in, in talking about games and hobby. I mean, I know there's going to be so many listeners who have kids and are sitting there wondering about it. And again, as an educator, you kind of think, well, what's the appropriate thing? I guess what we're saying, what it boils down to is, yeah, go and play D&D with kids if they're into it. Mm. <laughs> if they're interested and try and be interested in whatever else they're interested in yeah, if they're not yeah, yeah well that's just the basis of attachment theory isn't it so yeah. all good all right thanks dave brilliant um chat it's been a great uh, chat Shay. yeah thanks for having me on again welcome <laughs> uh yeah okay so maybe we'll do this again when people have piled up a load of questions and uh you know we can we can do a q a or something <laughs> love to, love to. Yeah. all right i'll speak to you in a bit cheers then game on bye-bye And that's about it for another episode. Many thanks to Dave Aldridge of Deep Centile Podcast for coming on the show and wittering on with me about using games in education. Well, I really appreciated your time, Dave. It was a fantastic conversation. And I've just forgotten how, yeah, fairly deep we went. Well, at least I felt we did. So thanks so much for your time. And I hope we can keep doing that again. Thanks also to my fantastic callers today. Um, in order of appearance, thank you to Corey and to Roy and Andy Goodman brilliant to hear from you all I really do appreciate it and you know guys if you're listening and you're thinking hey I've got something to say or a question to ask please 
either grab the Anchor app and like make a quick one-minute message, drop it into me, or even just grab your phone, record something audio into your audio recorder, and email it to me at hello at rpgrescue.com because I love hearing from you, and yeah, it makes the show so much richer. Let me say a big thank you once again to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through their generosity on Patreon. Basically, the money is not the point. It's the community. It's been growing recently. We're up to, like I think, about 28 people as I sit and record this today. Just thank you to all of them and welcome to all the new guys. I've been fiddling around, by the way, with the various rewards on there. And there's a few new things and tweaked things. So if you're curious... You know, it starts at a dollar, and it's just kind of a way of letting me know that you're enjoying the show. So thank you, and thank you to all the patrons. Finally, thank you to you, the listener. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to listen to me, and I hope that you feel I've fulfilled my core mission of encouraging you all to regularly play imaginative games and to play in a way that suits you better. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again on the flip side. Game on. <laughs>